Welcome to Exhale, a podcast series where we explore topics on spirometry and respiratory care. Your hosts are Mark Russell, Marketing Communications Manager, and Jancelyn Neer, National Sales Manager and Respiratory Therapist for Vitalgraph US, a global leader in respiratory diagnostics. Mark and Jansen interviewed David Weil, author of Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant, published by Simon & Schuster. David is the former director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and the Lung Transplant Program at Stanford University. He is currently the principal of Weill Consulting Group, which focuses on improving the delivery of transplant care. Well, welcome, David, to our podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, why don't you please give us a little bit about your background on yourself, your education experience, and your current responsibilities? So I've been during the course of my 25-year career in the advanced lung disease and lung transplantation arena. I spent most of my career at Stanford University Medical Center, where I was director of the Center for Advanced Lung Disease and the Lung and Heart Lung Transplant Program. I left Stanford about five years ago and opened up a consulting practice where I work with healthcare entities of all sorts, hospitals mostly, and helping improve transplant pulmonary and ICU care and interact with also a number of companies that are in that space as well. Great. So are lung transplants common in the U.S. compared to other organ transplants? Of the four solid organs that we transplant, so that would be heart, lung, kidney, liver, lung transplants are the least common. There would be about a few thousand transplants per year in the lung transplant arena. So they're not as common. We really started doing transplants in our country in the late 80s, early 90s. So it's relatively new. And the survival rates are getting better, as is the volume of transplants that are performed this year. And I think some of that's going to continue to go up because of the COVID pandemic. Sure. So Speaking of percentages that have gone up, what is the percentage of lung transplants that are successful? And typically, what's our average life expectancy post-transplant? So we measure success in a variety of ways. The regulators, those are the bodies that tell transplant programs if they're doing a good job or not a good job, look at one-year survival because it basically speaks to to the competence of the program. Can they get patients to one year post-transplant? Obviously, patients want to live much longer than that. So the one-year survival rates in the United States average anywhere from 85 to 90 percent. So about nine in 10 patients will make it to the first year after transplant. Patients go on then to live a variable amount of time, but somewhere in the five to 10-year range would be average for a lung transplant recipient, although I've had many more that have lived 15, 20, 25 years even. And some patients, if they have problems with their original transplant, do qualify for a second transplant in some instances. So a lot of times when you think of lung transplant, they think of double lung transplant. Can you live or have a long life expectancy with just a single lung or even a lobectomy surgery? You can. It used to be that lung transplants were about 50% single lungs and 50% double lungs when I first started out in the business in the early 90s, that's changed considerably where most organ trans, most lung transplants, I should say, 
are double lung transplants. So I would say anywhere from 85 to 90% of the lung transplants that are performed currently are double lung transplants. But to your question, yes, you can live perfectly well with one functioning lung. There's a lot of patients that have undergone, usually for cancer reasons, an entire removal of one of their lungs or a portion of their lungs, like a lobectomy, that go on to live a fairly normal life. So not being medically trained, uh, why do humans need two lungs and are lung capacities different between males and females? Lung capacity, like most things that we have in our body, whether it's our liver, our kidney, or our lungs, are redundant. <laughs> and by redundant, I mean that we have a lot more lung tissue available to us than we actually need. And our lung capacity diminishes over time, but only slightly. That's if we don't smoke. If we smoke, then our lung capacity declines much more rapidly, which may be obvious to your listeners. I think that men and women actually have similar lung capacities based on their height and their weight, so forth. I think where the difference is, and there's some debate about this actually currently, about whether or not different racial groups have different lung capacities, and that's a matter of some debate in the literature right now. Yeah, we've seen that as well. Yeah, and so it's a funny story. You know, the first time, uh, my background is in respiratory and sleep medicine. I remember the very, very first patient I had solo hook up for a sleep study. I look in their charts, there's nothing in there. There's notes of uh, previous history of any pulmonary disease, any respiratory disease, or any anything whatsoever. He's in just for a split night sleep study. And I go to hook him up, I get ready to do the ECG where I go across his chest. I pull back the sleeves of his shirt, expose his chest, and he's got a scar all the way down his right side, all the way down on his left side. And I said, sir, can you tell me what these are from? Oh, well, that's a double lung transplant 15 years ago. And I'm like, wow, so you came in tonight for a split night sleep study. Had I not done it the way that I do it when I hook up an ECG, I could have easily set you up on an auto PAP, CPAP system, and over titrated somebody that was a double transplant patient. So that always sticks in my head, the fact the very first patient I ever hooked up, I could have killed because of lack of notes, right? Yeah, and transplant recipients in general, you know, have all sorts of aspects of their care that you have to be really mindful that they're a transplant recipient when you care for them. So I'm sure that um, we would want you to know that the patient was a lung transplant recipient oh, yeah, before they get a sleep study. Yeah, absolutely. So that kind of brings up to the next question is, are the lung transplant patients going to see primary care physicians instead of just a pulmonologist as their primary care? So why don't primary care physicians do pulmonary diagnostics as routine tests for a regular physical? Let me take those questions separately because I think there's two different aspects to them. Lung transplant recipients typically are seen by their lung transplant program. In fact, not only do primary care doctors don't feel qualified to take care of lung transplant recipients, neither do general pulmonologists. So most of the lung transplant patients by the center's choice and the patient's choice would rather see a transplant pulmonologist, somebody specializing sure. in transplantation, somebody like myself. And that's generally gotcha. what's done. That's actually been assisted by telehealth quite a bit, especially lately, because many of the patients that we transplanted, say at Stanford when I was there, are from all over the western side of the United States, and it's very difficult to come to the clinic every time 
one of them needed right. to see us. But I think to get to your other point, I think that there really needs to be a stronger move to get spirometry, basic spirometry, basic measurement of, of lung function as part of the vital signs that even primary care physicians take. I know that effort has been underway for a long time, but I think we have to take a different tact at it because I don't think that that's been readily adopted. I agree. I mean, especially with COVID, it kind of pushes it to the fore center of everything where everybody can kind of just know that this is very much needed. You know, think about that, uh, that high school student that's had COVID that goes into their physical for a sporting event. And uh, as they're doing it, they should be checking for FVC numbers, FV1, FV6, uh, peak flow. Because what happens if that person is a long hauler and doesn't realize it until they get out there their first day, maybe it's a soccer player, they run a two-mile day, and boom, they pass out because their lung capacity just isn't there. Well, I That's couldn't agree with you more. Yeah, yeah. I, I really couldn't agree with you more because I think it's interesting in our country, and I don't know how this really came about, but I don't think that we pay as much attention to lung health as we do to, say, cardiovascular health, which we should also pay right. attention to. But for some reason, lung health, whether it be research dollars devoted to it or clinicians' understanding of it, it's fallen, I think, short of our goals. And maybe COVID, one of the silver linings could be that even at a primary care level, we're paying more attention to basic lung health parameters. Yep, I agree. Well, David, you have a book out called Exhale, which is funny that it's the same as the name of our podcast. Exhale, Hope, Healing, and the Life in a Transplant, uh, published by Simon & Schuster. Tell us about this book and what inspired you to write it. My book is a memoir about the experiences that I had leading a large transplant program like the one I led at Stanford. And it's not only telling patient stories one after another, some of which are very inspiring that I tell, but I wanted to give the reader an idea of what it's like to deliver that kind of care. What's going through the mind of someone like me and to peel back the curtain of complex medical care. I think patients often look at their doctor and may not understand what he or she is really thinking. And what I wanted to do in my book is to reveal what somebody like me is thinking both the good and the bad. So there's obviously very high moments in what I did, but there are also devastating moments in what I did, and I write about both. And so I wanted, rather than talk about the mechanics of transplant, which I don't think a lot of people would be interested in, I wanted to talk about what it feels like to deliver that kind of care and even receive a transplant, what that really feels like. Can you share one of your excerpts, some sort of interaction with a patient that you uh, encountered? Yeah, I, I tell a few different stories that I think are meaningful. You know, one part of the stories that I tell are related to the selection process, how we choose transplant candidates to go on the waiting list, because I think most people would assume that's all based on strict medical criteria, and some of it is, but some of it's not. Some of it's based on very subjective criteria. So I tell the story in a book about a young man who I called Brian in the book, who was developmentally delayed, 19 years old, had an IQ of around 60 or so. So he needed help in taking care of his medications and taking care of himself generally. And so I tell the stories about how 
there were people on the transplant team that did not want him transplanted because it was, quote unquote, not a good use of a lung to give it to somebody like him. And what I write about in the book is that's really putting a value judgment on somebody's life. Is his life less worthy than somebody else's, mine or yours or anybody else that we transplanted? So we make these kind of value judgments that I wanted to really bring to light uh, in, in my book. I also tell the story of how we have to think outside of the box at times. Tell the story of a young ex-college football player, had two young children, had a very rare form of cancer called bronchoalveolar carcinoma. It's a kind of cancer that's not smoking related. It's confined to the lung. I thought that it would be amenable to transplant, but one of the things that we learn early on is that lung cancer is not an indication for a transplant. But I thought, hey, in this case, we can actually get this guy transplanted safely. And I really went to bat for him and we ended up doing the transplant and he ended up doing very well. So these kind of patients really stick with me because they were successes. But then I also tell about the times that I became very close to a particular patient, ones that I considered just like my own daughters in some cases. I cared about them that much. And then the devastation of losing a patient like that after a number of years was emotionally very difficult for me. And I think actually was the main reason that I got out of the front lines of transplant care when I left Stanford. I'm sure that you can get emotionally involved in a lot of your patients. It would be tough. What, what is the percentage of transplants out there for lungs and or hard is it to get on the list? It's pretty hard. So, you know, at this current time, even if you make it on the waiting list, only so 80% will actually survive to get the transplant, 20% will die on the waiting list. But even to take it back a step, at Stanford, we would get somewhere between four and 500 new referrals a year for a transplant. And of those, we would only put 45 or 55 on the list each year. Wow. So really about one in five, one in six that would come and see us. It's difficult to get a lung transplant. There are not that many done in the country each year, and we have to select the best candidates possible because we want the operation to be successful. But that means that we leave a lot of people out, and I'll write about this in the book as well. Saying no to patients and telling them they can't go on the waiting list is also extremely difficult because you're essentially giving them a death sentence at that point. Very, right. very tough stuff. All right. I know recently in the news, there was a patient that got a, that believe it was a, it was a pig heart um, mm -hmm. patient. What, what's your thoughts of uh, doing transplants organs from animals to people? Well, I think it's an attempt and it's called xenotransplant where okay. you take an animal organ and put it into a human. And I think it's an attempt to correct the problem that I just mentioned of not enough organs to go around. So that's the goal, certainly a worthy goal. There's a lot of issues. Transplanting animal organs into humans is different infectious disease issues. I think we've seen that recently where an animal virus can jump to a human and that's uh, been the nightmare that we've all been living for a couple of years. So there's the, those issues. There's issues of rejection. Is the pig immune system different from the human one? Yes. And so we have to account for that. But I think it's always good, and our field has done a good job, I think, of pushing the frontier 
making sure that we're trying to figure out a way to expand the donor pool so more people can get access to the operation. But with regard to xenotransplantation, that was an experiment, more or less. And sure. I would consider that experimental. We need to get to the stage where we have to do large clinical trials before this is going to get to the masses of people that need it. So we have a ways to go. Sure. What about cloning? Are we there yet on that aspect? I think we're getting there on that one as well. And I work with a company that's interested in that and essentially building a lung through 3D printing techniques, building a scaffold for the lung, and then through growing of lung cells, which we can do in the laboratory, actually build a lung. I think that that's going to come too. And I think all these things are very, very exciting. And my dream would be that we can eliminate waiting list deaths because of all the things that I saw during the course of my career, patients that died on our waiting list were probably the hardest for me to take sure. because I felt like we didn't ever give the patient a chance. You know, we never got them to the starting line and th those were tough to take for me and for the patient. I understand. So yeah. if, if you wouldn't mind, give a little message out to our listeners about uh, the importance of being an organ donor. Well, I'll take every opportunity to do that because I feel strongly about that. I mean, if you look at a couple statistics, let's go through them. There's 110,000 people waiting on the waiting list today, and 17 of those patients are going to die every single day waiting for an organ transplant. As it stands right now, if families are approached about a loved one donating their organs after they've been in an accident or had a medical catastrophe, only about half will consent for donation. And in some parts of the country, it's even much less than half. It does vary, that is, consent for organ donation by geography, by socioeconomic status, by race. And what we've got to do a better job of is pushing that number up among all types of people, regardless of socioeconomic status or race, and making sure that everyone understands that one organ donor can save eight lives. It's powerful stuff. It's a silver lining to what is a devastating event for a family, but in many instances has provided a lot of comfort that their loved one is actually contributing to saving eight lives. Right. These are the statistics that you want to just blast out there, social media all over the place. Just as much as we want smoking cessation and all that stuff, we want we want people to see that their lives mean more even after life to just let you know other people live too. So I appreciate you giving that message out. And I tell you what, since I started driving as a kid uh, and I saw that the opportunity to become an organ donor on my driver's license, I have always checked that box. I, I thought it was important for me to give back and hopefully save a life. So that's tremendous. So the book is Exhale, Hope, Healing, and a Life in Transplant, published by Simon & Schuster. Where is this book available? It's really available wherever books are sold. And I always you know, hope that people order their books or go to, to their independent bookstores and get them. But of course, they're available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, just wherever you buy books. And if folks are having trouble finding it, they can just go directly to my website, which is davidweilmd.com and click a link and essentially be sent to any bookseller that you want to buy the book. Wonderful. 
David, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. It has certainly been my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to Exhale with Vitalograph. Your hosts are Mark Russell and Jance Lanier. We hope you enjoyed what you heard today. Please follow us for upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening, and we look forward to you joining us again on Exhale with Vitalograph.